Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Well, welcome. Welcome to Outreach Church. We really, really are stoked that you guys are here this morning. Uh, you could have done anything on your Palm Sunday, anything at all, and you choose to come here, and, uh, and we don't take that lightly. So if you have your Bibles, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to start just right at the top of Matthew 21, then we're going to bounce around a little bit. Um, So Matthew chapter 21, it says, When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You. Father, I just thank You for Your presence here today. That You're not distant and far off. That You said wherever two or three are gathered, that You're here in our midst. And so we just thank You. Father, we, we, we're honored that You are with us. God, that, that we would accept You is, is not hard to understand, but that You would love and want us. That You saw our lives, God, and You determined that our life was worth the blood of Your Son, Jesus. My life. Our individual lives that You thought they were worth the blood of Your Son. is humbling. And we thank You for that. We ask God that, that we would see what You saw in us. we would start, begin to see and glimpse what You saw in us that You had to have that You paid such a high price for. We thank You for that. God, I pray that as I speak, it would be just from Your Spirit, from Your heart, God. That our, that our ears would be open to hear. That our minds would be able to understand, God, that, that we have the mind of Christ and we thank You for that. And that that our hearts would be good soil, that the seed of Your Word would go deep into the soul of our hearts and it would produce fruit, God, that a, that a world that's dying and does not know You would taste the fruit of our lives and see that You're good. And we just thank You for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's Jesus. You know, this is the Palm Sunday story and He's coming into town and He's riding on a donkey and the people see Him coming 
And this is kind of what they've been waiting for. You know, they've been waiting for the king to come riding in, and they've been waiting for him to come and, and, and lead them against their enemies and to set them free and to establish a kingdom forever that would never be overtaken again. And they've grown up waiting and listening to the prophecies, and they've heard the prophets speak, and they know what the prophets speak, and they know the stories, and they know the promises of God. And so they've been waiting for this Mashiach, they've been waiting for Jesus. And now they finally, here He comes. And the people that don't know, they ask, who is this? And the crowd say, this is Jesus the prophet. The man from Nazareth in Galilee. And so they all have their expectations now that finally the Deliverer has come. That finally this One who will lead them into triumphant victory. Who will vanquish their enemies. Who will establish them forever as a free people. No longer enslaved. Never again to be enslaved. That He has finally come and they are super excited. And so when they see Him coming, they don't even want the donkey that He's riding on to have to step in dirt. They take their coats off. They lay them down. And the, and the ground that's not covered with coats they cut palm branches and lay them down just to to honor him to welcome him to 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 to, uh, usher him into the city and they're shouting hosanna 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 was something that they started saying as people when they were waiting for a deliverer it meant send a deliverer we pray deliver us and it was something that they would cry while they were in bondage when they were in, 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 in Egypt, they would cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they were just crying and praying for this Deliverer to come. And, and after God sent them a Deliverer, and after someone came and brought them, Moses brought them out, Hosanna became synonymous with welcoming in the conquering King. And so as the kings would go out into battle and come back, they would line the streets and they would welcome the conquering King back saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And it was they were honoring the man who had gone out and either won or defended their freedom from their enemies and vanquished their enemies. And now Jesus comes and they can think of only one way that Jesus is going to do that. And so they think, here comes the conquering King. And they praise Him and they honor Him. And they shout, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the crazy thing is, is that from the mouth of the same people who said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is He. Hosanna in the highest. Those same mouths, just a few days later, would shout to to Pilate, crucify Him and let His blood be upon us and upon our children. In just a few short days, they would go from laying their coat down, their one coat. Didn't have a closet full of coats, they had one. It would be trampled in the mud by a donkey, but it was worth it to them to welcome Jesus in, to honor Him, to revere Him. And they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Those same people, some of the very same ones who stood and shouted and laid down palm fronds would one day soon shout, crucify Him and let His blood be upon us and upon our children. We talked about this last Easter. That The amazing thing about that is, is that what they asked Asked for in hatred, God gave them in love. And one day they would be thankful that the blood of Jesus would be upon them and upon their children. And they didn't. That's why Jesus said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They really didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know that one day they would be so thankful they would hit their knees and they would praise their God that the blood of Jesus was actually upon them and upon their children. 
because they asked for it in hatred and God answered and gave it in love. So I was just thinking lately a lot about how I've met a lot of people that seem disappointed and I've heard a lot of theology that is based more on disappointment than it is on the Word of God. I've, I've heard a lot of theology that starts with quoting a verse and then saying, but, and then filling in the blank with a life experience. Well, I know the Word says this, but, and then determine and explain why the Word of God couldn't mean what it clearly says and give their favorite testimony or story of why it couldn't mean what it seems to say. And the reason it can't mean that is because of something that happened in their life because of a disappointment or because I used to believe that, but... And I was thinking like how easy it is for us to become disappointed and disillusioned. And a lot of times when that happens, we start to change our theology and we'll, we'll adjust the bar down and say, well, I used to believe this, but then X happened, and now I don't. And see, the children of Israel were are experiencing this during the, the week leading up to Good Friday because they had this great expectation that Jesus said He was coming to set the captives free. He marched into the temple. He said, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon Me. He's anointed Me to preach good news, to declare the favorable year of the Lord, to, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, all the things that He promised to do. And so they were starting to see these things happen and they were starting to see that, that this maybe was the Jesus, and they're seeing their sick healed, and their dead raised, and they're seeing blind eyes open. And so the only thing that's left now is for Him to set the captives free. And that must mean that He is going to come and deliver us from the bondage of the Roman Empire and lead us into victory the way the kings of the past have. And this time, we're going to once forever be established as a free people, never again in bondage or in subserviency to another kingdom. And so they have this expectation of Jesus. And so Jesus comes riding in. And He's meeting their expectations. And the first thing I felt like God was saying to me was this. As long as God or people do what we think they should or want them to do, we have no problem believing that they are worthy of our praise. As long as they say what we want to hear, we will agree with and accept what they say happily. See, Jesus was riding into town and He's about to start speaking and most of what He said was either to the disciples or to the Pharisees. And in just a few short days, people who shouted, Hosanna, would shout, Crucify! And if you look at what Jesus did, He came in and He immediately began correcting people. He flipped tables and chased money changers out of the temple. He called Pharisees a brood of vipers, sons of hell. He, called, he said very, very sharp and pointed things to them. Not because He was there to criticize them, but because He wanted them to understand their need for a Savior because they thought so highly of themselves. And so He said to them, He said, you hypocrites, you go to the ends of the earth to make a single convert. And when you do, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Do you imagine being a Pharisee and hearing some non-Pharisee say this to you? Someone who sits with tax collectors and women lets prostitutes touch him. 
See, they couldn't understand. They, they had no clue why Jesus was there. And because they couldn't see Him for who He was, they put expectations on Him that He never meant to fulfill. And when He failed to meet their expectation, their disappointment caused them to change what they believed. And they went from Hosanna to crucify in a few days because their ex- expectation wasn't met. And because Jesus' coming didn't look like what they thought it would look like for Jesus to come. How many times, you guys, just being honest, have we had times in our lives where we put an expectation on God and when He failed to meet our expectation, rather than checking our own hearts and, and trying to figure out what maybe we did wrong or what maybe we had wrong or maybe our understanding wasn't perfect, we suddenly want to blame the only one in the situation who is perfect. We have imperfect people in an imperfect world dealing with imperfect people. And when something doesn't go the way we think it should, we blame the only one who is perfect and never was perfect. And we say, well, it must be His fault. Because whether we like it or not, in a lot of cases, God's on trial in our lives. And the jury is our experience. And it speaks way louder than His Word. I started thinking about that in my own life. Do I have anybody in my life that can say to me, you're wrong? Or do I only allow people in my life that tell me what I want to hear, what I expect to hear, that say things to me that are easy to hear, and I love those people and I honor those people and they're my friends and I spend time with them, but do I have people in my life that can say to me, you know what, I think you're absolutely wrong on this. And do I have people that I have a vested relationship in with to the point where they can say that to me freely without, it, without expecting me to cut them out of my life or to want to crucify them? Because I, and I was thinking about a time a few, I guess it was in the, this, earlier this year, and I was talking to a friend of mine, and we were discussing something, and I told him how I felt, and he said to me, you're absolutely wrong about this. You are 100% in the wrong. And I tried to argue with him and I tried to tell him why I was right and why what I was feeling was right and I gave him all these hypotheticals and I tried to convince him that I was right. But the more I argued, the more I started hearing the words coming out of my mouth, the more I realized that he was right and I was wrong. And when we came to the end of our conversation, I said, you're right. I'm wrong. But do we have people like that? I'm thankful that I have friends that love me enough that will say to me, you're 100% wrong on this. This is not like a gray thing. This is not a you think this and I think this. You are wrong. Because if we don't, we run the risk of only being with people who agree with us. Now listen, there are some things that are black and white, you know, right and wrong, and that we can go to the Word. But I'm talking about on a personal level where people can come to you and say, listen, I've, I, I heard what you said. Or listen, I've heard that you're thinking about doing this. Or listen, I've noticed this in your life and I just want you to know you're wrong in that. I love you. I'm not here to condemn you. Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that through me the world might be saved. So He wasn't saying this stuff to the Pharisees to condemn them. He was saying this to them so that they would open their eyes and see they're lost, they're blind gods, they're leading people into a ditch. He said, listen, if the blind lead the blind, they both end up in a ditch. He's trying to tell them, you guys don't see. You need to see something that you're not seeing. You're, you're, you're going around and you're converting people into what you're teaching, but when you do, you t- make them twice as much bound up as you are. 
And he's saying these things not to condemn them, not to hurt their feelings, not to make them angry, but he's saying these things because he loves them and he realizes I only have a short time left on this earth and I have to tell them these things. And if they would have allowed themselves to be corrected by him, it would have been a blessing in their life. But instead, they decided that instead of listening and humbling themselves and taking what he was saying, they would discredit the one who was saying it. Because if I can discredit the one who's saying it, then I can discredit what was said. And when people come to you and want to share something corrective with you, and, and, and suddenly your expectation of what it looks like for them to be your friend isn't quite met, because wait a minute, that's not, that's not butterflies and rainbows. I didn't like it. I'll be honest. Like, it, like My flesh did not like the fact that he was telling me I was wrong. And I wanted with everything in me to convince him that he was wrong and I was right. And that's hard for some of you that know me to believe. But there was a time. But I'm thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart. And I'm thankful for friends who, like Jesus, love me enough that when I'm sitting there wrong, they'll say, you're wrong. You have people that say, I don't care what anyone thinks. Let me tell you something. The person who says that cares more than most. The man who doesn't care just doesn't care. The man who has to convince you that he doesn't care cares way more than most people. And the truth of the matter is, is you should care what some people think. You don't have to care what everybody thinks, but there should be some people in your life that you actually care what they think and that when they say to you, hey, I think you should consider something that you actually listen. Don't insulate yourself so much and and put up this wall and say, I don't care what anyone thinks. You should. Not what everyone thinks, because you never please everybody. You know, remember Jesus, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for this is how their fathers treated the false prophets of old. In other words, if everybody speaks well of you, it's because you're not telling somebody the truth. He didn't put it in there just to make the Bible that much longer. It was because if you were walking in truth and speaking truth, somebody at some point was going to be offended. He wanted you to know that was okay. But listen, if everybody's offended, I'm just going to leave that marinating there for a second. If everybody's offended, if everybody thinks you're wrong, putting up a wall and saying, I don't care what anyone thinks. I don't have to please anybody but God. Well, this has nothing to do with pleasing God. This has to do that there's wisdom in a multitude of counsel. This has to do that if everybody thinks you're wrong, that you should at least stop and consider that maybe there's a chance that you could be slightly off. But do we have friendships where people actually feel, listen, Jesus loved. He is love. I think this is something we have to understand is that He's love and yet He was perfectly willing to confront people and still is perfectly willing to confront people in love. 
And me and Patty were discussing this this week. There's this, I think there's this tweak that's happened to, you know, because of the message of righteousness where people say, well, well, God never deals with our sin. That's not true. He doesn't deal with you as a sinner, but he will deal with your sin. If you don't believe me, read the Bible. Because the book of Revelation contains letters that are written to the church after the cross. And he says, but I have this against you. He didn't say, this is who you are. He didn't say, you're sinners. Paul didn't say to the sinners at Corinth, but he certainly talked to the people, the saints at Corinth about the activities in their life that didn't line up with who they were and who God said that they had become in Christ. So he doesn't say, you sinners, because you sinned, but he says, listen, saints, that's sin. And that has no part in you. Jesus said, I, I know your deeds. I know the reports. I know your love for other people, but I have this against you. And if you don't, this is Jesus. New Testament Jesus to a New Testament church. I'm going to spit you from my mouth. Let that do to your theology what it does. That's Jesus. Because you're neither hot or cold. Do we have people in our lives that can speak to us and correct us in love? You've got to speak the truth in love just as much as you love to speak the truth. There's a balance. But do we have people in our lives that could actually confront us without the risk of us crucifying them? Because when Jesus confronted the people, their response was, I can't shake this message, so we have to find something wrong with Him to discredit what He's saying. Listen, God can speak through people whose lives are not perfect. Just because someone's life isn't perfect doesn't mean they lack the ability to speak truth. And if you will only receive truth from someone who you think is walking in perfection, you've got a pretty short list of who you'll listen to. Because they came to Paul and they said, Paul, these people, they're preaching the Gospel and some of them are preaching this Gospel just because you're in prison and they're trying to cash in on your fame and they're trying to make a name for themselves and they're just preaching the message that you were preaching, claiming it's their own. They're taking advantage of people. And Paul said, don't forbid them. It doesn't matter why they're doing it. In other words, they'll answer for their motive. But as long as what they're speaking is truth, let them continue to speak it. Why? Because you're not responsible for the motive of the person speaking it to you. You're responsible with how you deal with what comes to you. God will deal with the motive. Well, I don't think their motive was pure. That's fine. Maybe it wasn't, but, was, but maybe consider that what they were saying was true. And let God determine and deal with the motive. You determine and deal with the truth that's being spoken. You guys are just fired up by this message, I can tell. So many amens, we're going to have to edit them out of the podcast. For all you podcast listeners, it's rowdy in here today. So, moving forward, it's okay to smile and laugh in church, I promise. You're going to smile and laugh when you get to heaven. The reason that you can smile and laugh now is because you're created in the image and the likeness of a God who smiles and laughs. 
It's okay. It's not whether you smile and laugh, it's what you smile and laugh at. You know what entertains you is usually a good indication of what's going on in your heart. They're putting away their palm tree leaves, Jesus. (laughs) And I see a couple of them in the back stirring up the people. So this Jesus now, he comes into the comes out of the out of the desert and the Spirit of the Lord's upon him. He's already defeated the enemy with the word and he's ready to begin his public ministry. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So this crowd that's shouting Hosanna, Hosanna has seen Him do all these things. The only thing they haven't seen now is the setting free of the captives. And so they have this expectation. Think about it. John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes and proclaims the coming of Jesus. John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb when Jesus walks into the room inside of Mary's womb. John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is John. Jesus said a greater prophet has never lived other than, uh, uh, higher than John, greater than John. This is John, John the Baptist. And he has done these things and pronounced these things. He even baptizes Jesus and sees the Holy Spirit come down and descend upon Him and hears a voice from heaven say, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If anyone was convinced of who Jesus is at this point, it should be John the Baptist. He knew Him before He was born. You know, God says to us, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. When I knit you together in your mother's womb, I knew who you were. I called you by name. John knew who Jesus was while he was in the womb. says he leapt inside of her when Mary came. He knows who Jesus is. And yet, he remembers that Jesus promised to set free the captives. And he finds himself sitting in a prison cell. And he sends his disciples to Jesus. And he says, are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? Second thing I felt like God was showing me was when God doesn't meet our expectations, we're quick to assume that we know exactly what it should look like. To the point that if it doesn't, we will often question everything but our own understanding. John can't fathom that maybe he doesn't understand something that Jesus spoke. So he sends his disciples to ask him, are you the one? John, you baptized Jesus. You saw Holy Spirit come down upon Him. You heard the audible voice of God speak from the sky and tell you who He was. 
You saw Him coming and you said He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because you find yourself sitting in a prison cell and because Jesus hasn't done yet what you thought Jesus came to do, everything gets shaken. And the only thing John doesn't question is his own understanding of what Jesus spoke. You realize the first thing John should have done is said, okay, I know that he said this and I know who he is. So if I'm sitting in prison, I must not have a correct understanding of what he meant when he said that. He doesn't. He sends his disciples. Are you the one? Or should we look for another? Are you kidding me? You really think you're going to see another and say that's the Lamb of God? You really think you're going to baptize another Jesus? No. But an but a, but a unmet expectation caused him to absolutely become offended with the fact that he sat in jail while Jesus was wandering around proclaiming he was going to do something that up to this point he hadn't done yet. And look at Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer to him is what? He says, go and tell them the the blind have their sight, the sick are healed, the Gospel is preached to the poor, He says, listen, go and tell them everything that I'm doing. The only thing he doesn't say is, and the captives have been set free. Why? Because he hadn't set the captives free yet because he hadn't given up his life. He hadn't become sin. He hadn't been cursed. And he hadn't taken back the keys of death yet. So he hadn't released the captives free yet. He was heading to do that. That's why he was on the earth. And And then he says, and blessed is he who is not offended in me who does not take offense in me. is what he says. Tell him everything I've done and the last thing you tell him, tell him this. And blessed is he who does not take offense in me. When expectations, whether unspoken or spoken, are not met, the opportunity will come for you to take offense. And you realize what Jesus was saying when He said that to John. He said, John, you have to take this offense. It doesn't just come upon you. It's pretty freeing to understand that every time you've been offended in your life, it's because you chose to take offense. Because that means there's nothing anyone could ever do to you that forces you to be offended. It should be freeing. It's a sobering thought to think that I've blamed, well, they did this and they offended me. No, they did this and you took the bait and you took offense. No one forced you to become offended. Jesus is saying that to John. He's saying, John, right now, there is a temptation for you to be offended and don't take it. Just because I haven't done everything you said, don't take the bait. Some of us are waiting on things that we know God's promised or maybe there's some things that we think God has said and we don't quite have understanding on it. In all you're getting, get understanding. Don't get offended. Don't take offense because something you thought was supposed to happen hasn't happened yet. That's the most freeing thing there is. Like the most freeing thing about the fact that God said that with every time that I'm tempted, He will provide a means of escape that I may withstand temptation and escape from under it. That's one of the most freeing verses in the Bible because what it tells me is every single time that I've sinned after I became born again, it's because I chose to. Which means every single time I'm tempted to sin, I could choose not to. For God is not willing 
that we should be tempted beyond which that we are able to stand. Okay, that's God saying, I'm, you can't say, well, I couldn't help it because fill in the blank. Well, you don't understand because you weren't there and you didn't see or hear what they said. It doesn't matter. Because if there was an opportunity to sin, there was an opportunity to escape and withstand and escape from it without sin. I know that because the Word of God is true. That's one of the most freeing things there is. We are all without excuse. That's what Holy Spirit had Paul say. Why? Because I'm never going to be able to stand before Him and say, you know, God, I wouldn't have, but they... You know, I, I really, I promise, I, I meant to love people and lay my life down for people the way that you laid your life down for me. And I know you told me to do that, but you forgot that there was the day coming that they would and fill in the blank with the worst thing done to you. That's not going to stand when you stand before Him. And the only excuse that will be valid, that should be valid on earth, are ones that would be valid in heaven. If you can't stand yourself standing before the Father giving that excuse and it holding up, you probably shouldn't stand before men and give the same one here on earth. That's freeing. Why do you guys look so heavy? Come on. Because that means that every time you chose to be offended, now that truth has come, you can make another choice and choose not to be offended. That means that your heart, that you're actually the steward of your own heart. I wonder if maybe he didn't write that in his word so that we would understand that it's up to us to control what actually goes into our heart and what comes out of our heart. That you're not a byproduct of what people did or didn't do to you. That you're not the sum of your missed uh, 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 disappointments on earth or, or what people did or what people didn't do, but you're actually the result of every word spoken by the Father. And He said that every word that proceedeth from His mouth will not return to Him void without accomplishing that which He set it forth to do. You realize that you were spoken into existence. You realize that, that and He actually spoke that the Word became flesh, that you were spoken to existence, which means you're not going to return back to Him without accomplishing everything that He sent you forth to do. The only caveat in that is that you have to obey. That's it. That means everything He's called you to do, He's gifted you to do, and He's made a way for you to do. But you could be like Saul. Well, God, I saw the people and they, were, they, they wanted me to sacrifice and they were leaving and I was afraid and so I did what you told me not to do. Saul, today, God would have established you upon His throne and your family upon His throne forever. But because you did this, not because God chose not to, not because God sovereignly didn't want you to, but because you did this, He's taken the anointing and He's given it to another. And your son will never sit on the throne. That's sobering. It makes me thankful that we live in the age of grace. But don't ever let us abuse grace. Because I promise you, you'd way rather live in the goodness of doing what He asked you to do than have to call for Him to rescue you constantly because you're walking in disobedience and find yourself outside of His will. All right. We have to remember that when God, what God speaks or what God has spoke confronts what we've thought, assumed, or experienced, the best place to start looking and examining is our own understanding. The best place to start examining 
is our own understanding. Is our own heart. And it's not just unbelievers. See, it would be nice if this was something that was just kind of off to unbelievers. It's not just the arrogant. It's not just the proud. It was the Pharisees and the pagans. But it was John. Even John, a greater prophet in, in all the earth, has not existed. And yet that John, because of disillusionment, because of disappointment, and because Jesus didn't do what he thought he came to do when he thought he should do it, actually had his belief so shaken that he wasn't sure if Jesus was actually who he said he was and he wasn't sure if he was actually the Messiah. If it could happen to him, trust me. Luke 24, chapter 13. We'll have it on the overhead if you want to turn there, you can. It's the road to Emmaus story. It says, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus Himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing Him. And He said to them, What are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? I mean, you know that Jesus knew what they were saying to each other while they were walking. When God said, Adam, where are you? It wasn't because he couldn't find him. It was because he wanted Adam to think about where he was. When, God, when Jesus said, what are these words you're exchanging? It's not because he wants in on their conversation. It's because he's actually challenging what they're talking about. And one of them named Cleopas, who obviously is the one who told this story to Luke, because he's the only one whose name is in here. Answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened in these days? See, if you don't have the same despair as everybody else, people will automatically assume it's because of something you don't know. And they won't even fathom that maybe it's because of something you do know. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus of, Na of Na the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. So these men are walking along and they're dejected. Why? Because this one who came, who they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, had been crucified and killed and his body had been laid into the ground and they couldn't understand that maybe there was more going on than what they could see and all they could think was head back to the town that they had come from. And as they're walking along, I promise you, when it says that they were prevented from recognizing him, it was not because God prevented them from recognizing who he was. Because Jesus rebuked them and said, you foolish men, how is it that you don't know the words of the prophet? Why would Jesus rebuke them and call them foolish for not seeing something that God had blinded their eyes to? Come on. Something blinded their eyes, but it wasn't the Father. That word there, prevented, is the same word that's used when it says that they came and seized Jesus. Something had seized their eyes and prevented them from seeing. 
when Jesus was walking next to them and talking to them. Mark 6.45 Immediately, Jesus made His disciples get into the boat and go ahead of Him to the other side of Bethsaida. While He Himself was sending the crowd away, after bidding them farewell, He left to the mountain to pray. When it was the evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea and He was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, He came to them walking on the sea and He intended to pass them by. But when they saw Him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw Him and were terrified. But immediately He spoke with them and said to them, Take courage. It's not I. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then He got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. So here's Jesus walking on the water. And they're so afraid that their fear causes them to not even recognize Jesus Himself walking towards them. And it says because they were afraid, they thought He was a ghost. And so as I was reading these two stories, paralleling them with each other, The third thing I wanted to share was disappointment because of what we think should have happened that hasn't or fear of what we think is going to happen can cause us to be blinded even when Jesus is standing next to us, walking across the water towards us, or standing amongst us, healing our sick and raising our dead. I believe that the disciples on the road to Emmaus and the crowds on the streets of Jerusalem were blinded by unbelief because of their disappointment. They were so disappointed because God hadn't done what they thought it would look like for God to meet the to keep the promise that He made, that they couldn't see Him even though He was standing there amongst them. Jesus is walking with them, and it says they were two of His disciples, meaning they knew who Jesus was, but something prevented their eyes from seeing, and I think it was disappointment. And I think it was unbelief that was caused because they had been disappointed and because they had not received what they thought they were supposed to from God. They were so disappointed that unbelief crept in and they couldn't see Him standing there. It's, and I believe it's the same thing that blinded the eyes of the people who, cri- who cried crucify Him that had shouted Hosanna. They were so disappointed. They were so in unbelief because He hadn't met their expectation that they couldn't see Him. And they actually said, let the murderer Barabbas go. And the Lamb of God, who they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, is standing in front of them. And because they are so disappointed in their unmet expectations, their eyes are blinded to truth. And when they're given a choice between the Lamb of God and the murderer, they say, let the murderer go and kill him. I think the second thing that causes our eyes to be blinded is fear. I'm just going to close up with this. This, Just picture this, okay? It's not, Jesus wasn't appearing as a ghost. It doesn't say in Jesus appeared as a ghost or any of that stuff. It says they thought He was a ghost. But it's Jesus in the flesh. He's walking towards them. 
they would know what he looked like. These were his disciples. These were the ones who spent all day every day with him. These were the ones who had just left him to go to the other side and they see someone walking towards them and because they're afraid, they can't see him for who he truly is and so they assume he must be a ghost. Fear and disappointment, unmet expectation will cause us to not even be able to see Him when He's walking towards us. Will cause us to not recognize Him when He's standing next to us. And will cause us to change what we believe even though we believed the truth just two days before. How many times have you met people that tell you that? Well, I used to believe that, but... And all they're telling you is, my life's experience is a much more trustworthy guide than the Word of God. My disappointment is speaking so loud that Jesus could be standing next to me and I wouldn't even know it. My unmet expectation means way more to me than everything the prophets prophesied even though I can't deny with my eyes that He's doing everything that He said He would do, there's one thing He hasn't done and because of that, I'll throw away everything that He has. Think about it. Because of one thing He hadn't done, they were ready to throw away everything He had done. Because they didn't understand. He didn't come to physically let them out of prison. He came to set them free eternally. And you realize that the, the, the people on the road to Emmaus, they said, and it's been three days. Like, come on, God. You promised, and it's been three days. How silly that sounds coming out of their mouths, but there's been many times that we've stood before God and made similar statements and said, I know what you said, God, but it's been fill in the blank. Two weeks, two days, two years, two decades, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. The time that has passed doesn't diminish the Word. It's Satan trying to shake you when doubt comes and says, well, yeah, maybe he said that, but guys, it's been three days. Three days. They went from believing that He was the Christ and following Him and ready to give their lives. And in three days, discouragement and disappointment because of what they hadn't seen completely robbed and stole everything they had. These were people who saw food multiplied. These were people who saw Jesus shout, Lazarus, come out! And a dead man walks out of a grave. These are disciples who watched Jesus multiply food, heal the sick, walk on water, who saw Him do all these things, and now it's been three days. Okay? They said it to Him like, don't you understand? You don't know obviously what's going on. And on top of that, it's been three days. And Jesus has got to be sitting there looking at him going, Oh, Father, who art in heaven. I know that there's, there's things in the Word that 
there aren't easy explanations for. I know there's circumstances in life that we face that we can't just explain away. And I don't, I'm not trying to be trivial, and I'm not trying to minimize things that have happened or things that are going on at all. I promise you I'm not. But I am saying this. I am saying that we cannot let one thing that we haven't seen destroy and steal and, and rob and convince us that everything we have seen wasn't true. We can't let the fact that it's been three days, years, months, whatever, diminish the fact that what we know is true is true. And we can't let our understanding be the measure of whether God is faithful or not. Because He hasn't done what we thought it looked like for Him to show up. For Him to do what He promised. He came to give them something so much better than just a temporary freedom on this earth. He came to give them eternal freedom. To actually be free. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. No longer sons of the enemy, but now sons and daughters of God. No longer serving themselves, but now serving Him. No longer living for themselves, but now living for God and for other people. He came to do all this, and they're over there going, well, you still have to pay taxes. (laughs) It's been three days. Not that any of us ever get an attitude like that, but you could imagine those two on the road to Emmaus. When disappointment is the voice that's speaking the loudest, it's possible, literally possible, to have Jesus in the flesh standing next to you and speaking to you and you have no idea who He is because you are so listening to the voice of disappointment of the past. Or like the disciples in the boat, so fixated on fear of what's about to happen that you can't see the man Jesus walking towards you. Or we can just become rooted and grounded and anchored in Him. Or we could take a stance that says, listen, let the Word of God be true and every man, every earthly experience be a lie that doesn't line up with what He spoke to be truth. That God, if something doesn't look like what You said, then I'm going to go after my understanding and make sure I understand You right. And if I understand You right, I'm going to stand here and wait until I see Your goodness because I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I'm not going to change my theology just because it gives me a convenient answer and accept something less than your son died on a cross for me to live with. I'm not going to let disappointment be the loudest voice in my life and say, well, I used to, but just stop. If you ever find yourself saying, I know what the Word says, but stop right there because you are about to say, I know what the Word says. I know what God Himself spoke, but something I have discovered trumps that. Just stop. And just say, I know what the Word of God says, but I haven't seen it yet, but I I believe I will. Something like that. Don't start putting God's Word on trial in the court of your life and finding Him guilty because the jury of your experience said He is. And consider for a moment that maybe there's something we don't understand, we don't see, we don't know, we don't believe. 
consider for just one second that if we were to ask Jesus, the only time the disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we? There was one time in the Bible they asked the question that every single one of us asks all the time. One time. Probably is in there for a reason. Probably not just to make that chapter of the Bible that much longer. Probably because there's a reason that it needed to be in there. That, and there's a reason that one time they asked Him. And there's a reason Jesus gave them one answer. And they said, why couldn't we? It doesn't matter what the, what the question is. It could be anything that you find in the Word that's a promise of God for your life. If you have a why couldn't we question, start with the why couldn't we that they asked Jesus and start with the answer Jesus gave them. And He looked at them and He didn't say because it wasn't His time, because it wasn't the Father's will, because it wasn't any of those things, those flippant answers that we get because God was trying to teach the boy something through this. Or we give people these answers. And listen, I know sometimes we do it with good intentions, but we need to be really careful that we're not flippantly giving people answers that Jesus Himself didn't give. Because Jesus looked at This is Jesus. This is the Savior who came riding in on the donkey who got put in the ground and rose again three days from the dead. This is Him, the conquering King, Jesus. This is the Word become flesh. The Spirit of God. The exact representation of the character and the nature of the Father. The radiance of His glory looks at them and says, because of your unbelief. Maybe we just need to consider for a moment maybe He would give us sometimes the same answer He gave the disciples. And don't assume that we have such a great faith that there's no chance that He would ever say to us what He said to the ones that day. That's not to be self-condemning. That's just to say there's so much more to grow into. That's the challenge just that, listen, if everything that He said is true, then that means there's so much more of Him to grow up into. And anything that He asked us to do, He's empowered us, gifted us, and equipped us to do. And I'm not saying the answer every time is because of your unbelief, but I am saying that it could be some of the times. And if, if we think that our belief doesn't change God doing something or not, you can just open up to the book of James. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives freely to all who ask. But when that man asks, he must believe. Not the Father must want to. It must be His will. It has to be the right day. You have to ask a certain way. You have to get enough people together praying and open up the prayer line. No, He said, you must ask. When you believe, you, when you ask, you must believe. You will have what you ask for. Because if you don't, what is He saying? He's saying you're an unstable man, double-minded, tossed to fro like, 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 like the waves in the sea. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, you can't come to him and ask him because he said to, and knowing that he promised that he would, and not believe that he will. Otherwise, you're double minded. On one hand, you're saying, I know you said to ask, and I know you said you'd give, but I don't know if you'll will, so I'm going to ask, and I'm going to determine whether or not your word is true by whether or not I receive. Let that man expect to receive nothing. But I thought you said that God will give, that he loves to give freely to all who ask. He does. But there's something on our end that's required when we ask. And to sit back and blame God because we didn't receive something He said that He wanted to give would be foolish. And to determine whether or not James really did have the Holy Spirit inspiring him to write by the wisdom that we receive would be foolish. 
but to determine the condition of our heart and whether or not we actually believed Him based on what we received would probably be a wise thing to start with. God, I just thank You for Your Word. I thank You that that You're a good Father, that You love us, that You love to give good gifts to Your children. God, I thank You that that everything You've called us to, God, that You've never asked us to do something and then stood in heaven laughing while we tried. When Jesus said, as the Father sends me into the world, so I also send you. That you meant it. I thank you, God, that we don't take offense at the things we haven't seen, that we don't throw out the things that we have because of the things that we haven't, but that we grab tighter onto you, God, and we just go after it with everything that we have. Not casually, God. Not like the people in the crowd brushing up against You, but going after You intentionally and grabbing a hold of You like the woman with the issue of blood because that's the one who received power. That's the one who received something. Not the ones who brushed up against You casually, unintentionally, but the one who intentionally grabbed a hold of You. When that happened, power flowed out of You. I thank You, God, that we go after You and just grab a hold and wrestle with these things. Challenge these things. God, I thank You for friendships and relationships in our lives. God, that we love each other enough to speak truth to each other even if it has to be something that they don't want to hear. Because I'm not interested in being flattered. I'm interested in looking more like You. I thank You for a loving, gentle spirit to do it. In Jesus' name.